Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Rhea Wong with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. I am here with my very good pal, Brooke Richie Babbage. She is a rock star in her own right. And today we're going to be talking about all the things that we wish we had known being new executive director. So I hope this will be helpful to all the folks out there. Welcome, Brooke. Tell me a little bit about your executive director experience. I became an executive director at 28 uh, when I founded the Resilience Advocacy Project, which was the organization that I ran for just about 10 years. And as ED, I grew an organization from one person and an intern, me, (laughs) and an intern to a staff of 10 and raised lots of money and grew an amazing board and learned a lot along the way. Tell me, you said that you were an executive director for 10 years, mm-hmm. and I, I was an executive director for 12 and a half, so I think yeah. we booked the trend. I think the trend is something like seven years. Well, it's almost like, what do they say about marriage? At seven years, you start looking around oh, and thinking, yeah, what am I doing here? Um, that, that actually hasn't been the case in my marriage, and it <laughs> turns out it wasn't the case for either of us as an ED, but I, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely get it. For sure. Well, and, and I think... The skill set of founding an organization is really different than the skill set and the interest, frankly, of running an organization, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. And I would also think that the time horizon shifts a bit. You know, the first few years, as you know, of starting an organization, you're definitely running an organization, but it feels and looks and is very different than the last three years of a 12 and a half year stint. So those first few years... The exhilaration of building something and growing something and every day, literally every day is so different that I almost don't count those years as part of the, as part of the 10 or as part of the seven, maybe. So maybe, maybe my, uh, my seven years started at year three. (laughs) I mean, it was those early years though. You know, it's like raising kids. It feels like the first years are the most important years. Oh, Oh, they they are. are. Foundational. Absolutely. Okay. So let's, let's jump into it a little bit. You and I have been talking about lessons learned and things that we wish we had known. Let's start with staffing because I feel like that was my biggest learning curve. Having never managed anybody before I was like, and I was 26 when I started, I was like, I can't be a boss, (laughs) but a boss I was. Yes. And so talk to me a little bit about what you feel like you wish you had known about staff before you started. Oh, wow. So many things. You know, I think that I, I lucked out in a lot of ways. My staff was really incredible. And I think there's something about being a founder. You get to grow your staff culture from the ground up. Almost like kids, your staff is a bit of a reflection of you and sort of what you envision. And I always knew the adage, you have to get the right people on the bus. And I feel like I did to to a large extent. I think my biggest lesson learned or one of them is it was really tough for me to get people off the bus when it was time for them to go. And I, you know, we talked to other EDs and managers and firing people or letting people go is never easy I think for me, it might have been a bit existential, sort of the idea that you fit at a certain point, you're part of the team, and then you're just not, it's not a good fit anymore. And that was really tough for me. And you said something at the beginning 
about not realizing or not feeling like a boss. I think it actually took me years Mm -hmm. to grow into understanding my power and what that meant. And quite frankly, being okay with it. I had been a manager, but that's really different than being a leader. My resistance to letting people go, I think, was very tied to a discomfort I had with really probably my role as the steward of the organization, um, which I think I know now, but didn't didn't yeah. get then. That's interesting because similarly, I think I didn't have a clear enough understanding of what my both formal and informal authority was. Absolutely. And I think what I didn't realize, and maybe this is similar to raising kids, is what you do is more important than what you say. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's in any relationship. Right. What you do is reality. (laughs) What you say is aspirational. Oh, I love that. Say that that again. (laughs) What you do is reality. What you say is aspirational. I want that on a t-shirt. Right, or maybe a mug. (laughs) But it's funny because I also didn't realize what of my actions were scrutinized to the extent that it was. So even as far as who I said good morning to or on my way to get my coffee or how I like who I asked out for lunch or whatever Absolutely. it is and it, it to be aware of that level of scrutiny is really different because yeah. in my mind I was like I'm just me I'm just like one of the guys we're just in the trenches doing our thing but that's right well you and I talked a little bit before we started about the separation of Brooke or Rhea as leader from Brooke and react just as people and understanding that there's a little bit of a difference or at least people perceive Brooke as leader and I feel Brooke as Brooke and that sometimes those two things while perhaps running in parallel are not the same. I remember the first summer we had we always had legal interns because we did a lot of advocacy work and as a lawyer I felt really comfortable I feel really comfortable with other lawyers (laughs) so legal interns made sense to me and we had five one summer and I, I was very friendly. I was always in the office, but I was not managing them. Our director of programs was managing them. And towards the end of the summer, she pulled me aside and she said, so I'm, I'm going to schedule a breakfast for you and the interns. I was like, okay, sure. And she said, they really have a lot of questions for you. And they've sort of, you know, they've been watching you and, but they're a little bit afraid to ask you to have breakfast. And it, it caught me off guard because I'm not a scary person at all. <laughs> and what I realized was it hadn't dawned on me that they saw me as being any different than I saw me, just Brooke in the office. But to them, I was the leader of this organization and that meant something. There was a weight attached to that and that authority, that sort of being comfortable with and recognizing that authority, sometimes you have to be reminded, absolutely. So talk to me a little bit about this, because this sort of came as a shock to me, was I'm very straightforward, I'm, I'm very direct, yes, you are. <laughs> and, and I sort of was raised in an environment of emotions have no place in a professional context, and I think I was really surprised and taken aback at the extent to which leadership is emotional, and the extent mm. to which you are responsible for other people's emotional experience, if you will. Yes. yes, the emotional labor of leadership. Mm-hmm. I was just uh, talking with a colleague about that. <clears throat> I think that that both caught me off guard and was deeply uncomfortable for me. And I think you and I are actually similar in that way. I I love the line from the baseball movie 
There's no crying in baseball. Yes. yes. That was like, if I could have a t-shirt that said there's no crying in baseball, that would be sort of my line. And then I realized, oh, but there is crying in baseball. <laughs> and, you know, crying as a metaphor for deep emotion. And we both ran organizations that worked in population, work with populations and in communities where there was often a lot of trauma. Um, the work that my organization does is deeply rooted in social justice. So... So the emotional labor is both um, about management and about understanding that you have to engage with the whole person that is on your staff, not just their work plan or their goals or their outcomes. And I, was a, I am a big fan of work plans, but also how they are showing up, how they are experiencing their work, how they're experiencing being out in the world. And my entire staff was out in the world in a different way than I was. And so building processes and systems that create a feedback loop Mm. that allow you to hear from your staff and also getting comfortable with the subtle dance of acknowledging that there is an emotional labor but only addressing the things that need to be addressed. So acknowledge versus address. And I think that dance is also unfamiliar to a lot of new leaders and founders. We might go all the way from there's no crying in baseball to, okay, at staff meetings, everybody you know, share how you're feeling. And, and that's also not healthy or appropriate. And so finding the balance between allowing your staff to show up as whole people mm-hmm. and engaging with them as whole people but not not letting go of the fact that it's a place of work and we're here to do work to achieve a mission. And that dance can be tough. To what extent do you think that the emotional labor of leadership is due to the fact that we are in the social justice, social equity sector? Or is it due to something else like nonprofit staff tend to be younger and earlier in their careers and may not have as much professional experience? So I've only ever worked in not just the nonprofit sector, the social justice subsector. But I actually think, I think that good leadership entails a bit of emotional labor, Mm -hmm. irrespective of the sector. Mm -hmm. I think that the space that is provided for that emotional labor is probably unique in certain ways to the sector that we're in. I know a lot of people that work in many different sectors and who they are as staff people and what constitutes a healthy and good relationship with the people that manage them and the people that they manage doesn't change from sector to sector. You're just more likely to find unhealthy management relationships in places where that emotional labor isn't acknowledged. Mm -hmm. What I will say, and this is just my own take on the world, I I really think that sometimes our sector allows too much space and that the emotional work and the sort of recognizing the whole people thing can take over the work work. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean to create an artificial separation between the emotional work and the work work. They, They are deeply intertwined, but I think... A second lesson that I learned actually with staff and management is tied to the fact that sometimes I would let things get in the way of pushing my staff to achieve the goals we had set out to achieve. And I think the things that sometimes would get in the way were tied to empathy, 
my understanding where they were in life, what was happening in their worlds, experiences they were going through, my genuine care for my staff. I really, really loved my staff. And that with that hat on, it could be tricky to say, I, I hear you about why you didn't do A, B, and C, but I need A, B, and C done. Right. Full stop. Um, and that I think in our sector, sometimes that emotional piece can get in the way. It, it definitely did for me, I will say. Yeah. It's funny because actually I think I was the opposite, <laughs> which is I was so goal oriented that I think I, I shortchanged the process. And frankly, I think I ran my staff really hard because I was 110% committed and therefore I expected the same thing. And the truth is my 110% doesn't look the same as other people's. And I can't expect that that would be true. So, yeah. you know, and look, the fact is I've probably had a lot of very unhealthy behaviors around work back then, <laughs> right? I've worked probably 80 to 90 hours a week on the weekends, in the evenings. I had no social life. and But to me, that was the nature of startup and, and frankly, was not a healthy. I was like, work-life balance, what is that? Right. Well, I, I think that's also, I mean, being a founder, I, I have to say, I was right there with you. Yeah. I mean, at the time, I was single, I had no kids, and I really loved my work. Mm -hmm. I, I, I really loved it. I loved what I was building. I loved thinking about it. When I was on the weekends spending time with friends, I was still sort of thinking about mm -hmm. work and what I was going to do on Monday or Sunday. So work-life balance didn't exist because... My work was my life. And I think you're right. It's, I guess, in theory, not really healthy <laughs> um, and definitely not good to expect your staff to bring that 110% because they aren't the founders. They aren't the leaders. And that weight is very unique to being the leader. Mm -hmm. So if you carry the weight, the full weight mm -hmm. of your staff, of the mission, of the board, of everything. So it's not surprising that you showed up, that your 110% uh, looked different. So any other lessons learned about the staff that we should cover? Um, I think those were my two biggest ones. Okay. I'm going to add a couple of my own. I think I was late to the game on this, but having a really clear system of hiring was yes. key for me because, I, you know, frankly, I hired people that were not a great fit. And mm -hmm. I think the other piece for me was because... I had not clarified the values of the organization and our operating procedures. Yes. We ended up hiring folks that were not a fit for culture and or the job. Like they might've been really nice people, but they <laughs> really didn't have the skill set for the job. And so it wasn't really until I got very systematic about our hiring and recruitment process that we started to hire better. My sister was a founding principal of a school and part of what she had to develop was a hiring rubric, mm -hmm. which was actually a document that walked through and standardized values, culture, capacities that you wanted at each level of staff. So leadership staff, management staff, et cetera. And she gave me her rubric and said, you need one of these. Mm -hmm. If the first time you hire anybody, it has to be according to this rubric. And again, that fits my personality. I'm a list person. I'm a sort of structure person. But I think having that and, and forcing myself from really early on to go through the process of articulating the values that I care about, not organizationally, but for staff culture, the skills I was looking for, and then how they showed up. 
I mean, the rubric really walks you through what are the values and capacities and skills? What is that going to look like in answers to interview questions and cover letters, et cetera? So the system is really important. And I would recommend to any of your listeners who are hiring, new to hiring, not new to hiring, think very, think about what Rhea just said, you know, about systematizing your hiring. I think it's one of the best things you can do for mm-hmm. staff. Yeah, and I would also say on that note of once they were on the bus, I was also not great about creating systems for ongoing evaluation. Mm, that's also, yeah. I mean, I, as you know, the work of an ED is often to be outward facing. And yes. so my, you know, I would spend 50 to 60% of my time out of the office and expect that like everything will be fine. I, I've just I hired good people. people. <laughs> I'll leave them alone, right? That's, that's right. right. But, you know, not recognizing how much care and feeding of staff yeah. needs to happen on a really regular basis. Absolutely. And it's funny you mentioned TV because one of the things that I receive feedback on and I, I tried to do, but just kind of isn't in my nature is the appreciation piece. I mean, when people said feedback, what they really meant was appreciation. Yeah. And uh, I quote, I quote Don Draper of Mad Men all the time, which <laughs> that's what the money is for. That's the thing to you. You got yeah. paid this week, didn't you? <laughs> didn't you? I mean, that goes back to your emotional labor point right. that people want to be seen. Yeah. You know, they want to be recognized for the work that they're doing. And yeah, I don't know that I was always great at it either. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I tried. I really, I tried. I know. I tried as well, but it just, it was not something that came naturally to me. And actually, my friend, Kishana, who I'm hoping to have on this podcast, told me about, are you familiar with the five love languages? Oh, absolutely. So the five love languages, staff edition, right? So how... Oh, brilliant. I know. I was like, why brilliant. didn't I think of that? <laughs> so I wish I had thought about the five love languages staff edition before but we used to do this thing on our retreats we'd have retreats every six months one for the full staff and one just for the leadership team and a part of what we would do would be some personality quiz or some something like learning about the five love languages just something that was a fun bonding way to learn about one another and I feel like we should have done the the love languages because I actually think they're actually really interesting and helpful in understanding how different people show up. So for those listeners out there managing a staff, think about implementing the five love languages staff edition. Right. So let's move on a little bit. You and I talked about sort of related to staff is board. And I mean, that's a whole other podcast. I mean, that's a whole other podcast series. But talk to me a little bit about what you wish you had known about your board. (laughs) Okay. I think that... I think the biggest thing for me, and I would imagine that this is not unique and that this is something that founders have to grapple with, is that I, it took me a while to ask my board to show up in the way that they needed to show up. I don't know that I asked enough, mm-hmm. early enough. And I think that it was tied to the fact that when you are starting an organization, your board shifts quite frequently in those early years. You have your startup board, you have your second stage startup board, you have your early governance board. So you have many board iterations before you sort of land at a healthy, professionalized adult governance board. And how you engage with that 
later stage of board with everything from the give get and how much you ask in terms of fundraising to how much you turn to them as thought partners looks really different in those latter years than it does in the early years. And how to understand and navigate those shifts can be tricky if you're not thinking about it. And I think it took me years to really feel comfortable saying it's, I need more than just a check. Mm-hmm. Check is very important, you know, or fundraising resource development is very important. And I need you to show up. And ironically, my early stage boards were totally hands-on. And what I, what I did, and different EDs navigate this differently, but I went from sort of a really hands-on volunteer active board in the early years to what I thought was a governance board, mostly people I didn't know, and they were wonderful people. But as soon as I made that switch structurally, I realized that I stopped engaging with them around thought partnership and showing up at our activities and events that I think psychologically I felt, oh, these people are giving more money, they're bringing more money to the table. And so they're different somehow than the early stage board that didn't give as much money, but gave their time. Mm -hmm. And that binary between time or money is false. It's not a real thing. Absolutely. I mean, it, it either be. or. Right. It's an and. Yes. Is what yes. I meant to say. <laughs> yes. I should say, let me just double click on that. I absolutely think <laughs> I should have asked more of my board. I also think that I, I think what I did in the early years is I, I didn't create a clear enough distinction between the responsibilities of staff and the responsibilities of board. And I think that can be really hard, especially as a founder, because you've come up through the culture of like, everyone is helping and absolutely. it's all hands on deck. Yeah. So I think I agree with that. And then the second thing is, the other thing that I think that I did was I think I was, I don't know if intimidated is the right word, but it seemed to me that there was a power dynamic Interesting. between me and my Even with you being the founder? I think treating my board as my bosses as opposed to my partners in the work earlier on in my career, especially yeah. when I was a 26-year-old ED, right? Because yeah. I didn't have the gravitas or the wherewithal or, frankly, the self-confidence as a leader and as an executive to understand my place on the board. Yeah. I think one of the tricky things for founders and early stage EDs with boards is, is that power dynamic and how it shifts in really subtle but meaningful ways over the course of the relationship Mm -hmm. and over the course of the growth of the organization. For me, I had to really make a sort of hard pivot. Mm -hmm. Once I realized that I I always had a really great, well-meaning, active board. I was really lucky that I got along with my board. I always did. And, and I almost think that to a certain extent that got in the way mm. a little bit, that they were my, not just partners, peers. And I think for me, if I'm honest, it was very tied to my being a founder, mm-hmm. that in my heart, it was my organization. I made the decisions. I made the call. And I had to really push myself to not just build a board that would treat me, that would see themselves as a governing body and that would hold me accountable, but also believe it Mm -hmm. and and cede some of the authority Mm. to the board. And that did not come naturally to me. 
that does not come naturally to me, especially, you know, it's like raising your kids. You spend those early years, blood, sweat, and tears, and you're like, this is mine. Mm -hmm. I know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. That's why I do it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I do it really well. Mm -hmm. And you guys are great resources to help me do what I do really well. And that mindset has to shift um, to a certain extent. But if we're honest, it can't go away because part of the success of being an ED is about confidence or at least acting as if, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you, you have to believe that you're doing what you're doing well or you can't do it. It's just too hard. And so shifting out of that with a board and suddenly having to have sort of deference to their opinions when really in your head, you're like, but you don't know. Yeah. I know is yeah. really hard. Really hard. Well, I think that actually goes to an interesting point that you and I have spoken about, which is when what makes a founder successful actually becomes a liability. Yes. Right. Absolutely. And so you know, to use Marshall Goldsmith terms, what got you here won't get you there. there. And I think part of it is your point around founders, right? They have made the organization successful by sheer force of will and their relationships and their personality. And at some point when the organization becomes bigger than them, they either have to recognize that it is no longer about them, right. or they continue to make it about them, and they stunt the growth of the organization. Absolutely. And I think the board is really, really critical to that. Mm-hmm. That that shift has to happen has to happen at the board level, vis a vis the relationship with the ED. You know, and like I said, for me, I I think I was telling you earlier, I have always served on boards and. I started to sit on boards of more established organizations. And as I saw in my own experience as a board member, what really high functioning governance boards looked like and how they worked and what board chairs do and how money is handled and talked about and how resources are understood. I brought that learning back to my organization and I had to do a hard, as I said, a hard pivot. I had to say, okay, you know what? This was great for what got us here. And these are the three things that need to change. Mm -hmm. We need more professionalization. So our committees need to start working and our chair needs to start being a chair. And let's get you the skills and the training that will help you do that better or you don't have to do it. Mm -hmm. I had that conversation. The second thing for me was the give get. We tripled our give get in six months. And some of that was you know, involved people leaving. And it was always friendly. Um, But the conversation was, this is the vision, you know, Mm -hmm. similarly to when you start an organization, Mm -hmm. like this is where we're going. And here's why. And it's right. It's the right place to go. And I know this may not be what you signed up for when you first joined the board. I totally understand if this isn't the journey that you want to be on no hard feelings. Yeah. But this is the journey. Yeah. And and then the third thing was the seeding of authority. Mm. You know, that I was really clear in my language, in my meeting agendas, in the structure of meetings. I started to be very intentional about how I showed up and what decisions they made and when I did and didn't push back and those kinds of things. And it 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 wasn't a nat- it didn't come naturally i had to just sort of tr- i had to train myself to say the the board is governing this institution given the benefit of hindsight what do you wish you had done earlier on in your career well the biggest thing that i wish i had done earlier was um 
find my people, find my tribe. I started really early reaching out to other nonprofit leaders. That's how you and I um, got to know each other. And so I was always very good about um, bringing people into my network and um, trying to identify people who knew things I didn't know so that I could learn. What I didn't do early enough was build a community of sort of an intimate community of peers to go on the journey with me. Mm-hmm. And I cannot stress enough how critical doing that was in the latter years of my leadership. So I joined, formed a group of women you've heard me talk about, came together maybe five or six years into my leadership. And we started meeting every month, every first Wednesday for breakfast. There were seven executive director women in New York City, um, different size organizations, and we did very different things. And we definitely were a support group. But more importantly, we were sort of like a mastermind, Mm -hmm. which I've mentioned to you, this idea of multiple minds are greater than any of the individual minds. And Mm -hmm. so that community of peers for me was more than just a group of women that I could ask advice. They really helped me self-reflect. And those breakfasts were, I don't want to say forced because I, I went because I wanted to go, but they were time that I trained myself to set aside to build me. And so at our breakfast, we would talk about fundraising, we would share resources, we would workshop problems and challenges. So I had this community that I could reach out to, to push me to build my skills, to highlight blind spots for me. They became a group that could say, yeah, I understand what you're saying, Brooke, but have you thought about it this way? Mm -hmm. I don't know if maybe you didn't see this. So that community allowed me to have the space and the time to do these things um, that you mentioned, the self-reflection and the pushing myself and the growing. Yeah. I mean, I often think of the phrase, you know, you have to put your own oxygen mask on before you can help other people. Yes. And I think in the early years, I I went without an oxygen mask because I was busy slapping it on everybody else. Absolutely. Did you ever have a coach? I did, actually. Was that helpful for you? Why? Yeah. Um, it has to be the right coach. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had a not amazing coach, mm-hmm. and then I've had a really great coach. And the most helpful thing for me was that she was able to reflect back to me questions that I should be asking myself. Mm-hmm. So she aided in the self-reflection process. And similarly to the breakfasts, the hour that we spoke every week was time, was scheduled time to, to work on me. You know, I think that the health of an organization requires that both the institution and the leadership be separate from the person leading. Mm-hmm. When I started my organization, I knew that I had to build an institution that was separate and apart from Brooke. I don't know that I knew early that I also had to develop my capacities as a leader separate and apart from sort of who Brooke is as a person. Mm -hmm. And that's 
absolutely in me, right? I, I am the leader. And it sounds a little crazy, but the leadership piece is sort of with a capital L. It's its own body of knowledge and set of actions and ways of engaging in the world that particularly as your organization gets bigger mm-hmm. and you have more donors and funders and partners that you're accountable to is going to feel and look a little different than Brooke might look at brunch on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. And taking time to work on my institution, you know, to go to trainings and learn how to fundraise. I got that. I knew I had to do that. But taking time to work on me as a leader, I didn't know early enough that I also needed to do that. And so the coach was time to do that. It was time to think about what I needed, how I was showing up, what my blind spots were, where I was falling down, Mm -hmm. where I was struggling. That's working on me as a leader not just working in the organization. And it's really important. Yes to all the things you're saying. I would also say that, I mean, you and I are both young executive directors. I was 26, you were 28. And I think part of the struggle was just the, we didn't have enough life experience, right? Like Chip Conley has this really amazing quote that he says, wisdom is good judgment based on pattern recognition with the right alchemy of confidence and humility. Really impressed that you remembered that quote. (laughs) I love that. And there's a lot in there. And there's a lot in there. I've thought a lot about how do we acquire wisdom, right? right? Because the thing is, you and I are intelligent women. We're both well-educated. We can go study the hell out of something. But when it comes down to it, so much of leadership is wisdom. And that only comes through life experience, being around the block, getting knocked around a bit, and then understanding oh, this is how it's going to go because I've seen it before. Well, and your point about self-reflection, you know, I think of everything we've talked about, the staff questions, the board questions. Self-reflection is really the key. Time and intentional Mm self-reflection. And I I think it's the key because you only recognize what you need to recognize to have that wisdom you can only shift along with the growth of your organization if you are taking even just a few moments to look from the outside in, mm. to look at what you're doing, to assess it, to ask strategic and critical questions. I mean, we as leaders spend a lot of time thinking about how we evaluate our programs and evaluate the work that we're doing towards our mission. And if we see part of the mission, as being intimately tied (laughs) to us as leaders, then we also have to take time to evaluate ourselves as leaders. And I don't mean in the board assessment evaluation time, I mean in the self-reflection. You know, what what have these last six months looked like from a leadership perspective, Mm -hmm. right? I am stewarding the ship. How's the ship doing? Mm -hmm. Is it still headed in the right direction. How's the captain doing? How's the captain doing? Is there a drag effect happening? And that self-reflection, I mean, I think the biggest lesson, the biggest thing I wish I'd known, encompassing everything, is that when you start an organization or when you're running an organization for any extended period of time, the organization that you come into or build on day one or in year one is a qualitatively different organism than in year 10. 
then in year four, then in year two. And the best leaders, the most successful ones, yeah, you have to have great programs and raise a lot of money and have a board and all of those things that we say success means. But really, you have to adapt. Mm -hmm. You have to be a different version of yourself and of yourself as a leader in year two, in year five, than you were in year one. And you cannot adapt if you don't take the time to reflect on how your institution's changing, how your staff is changing, how your needs are changing. So without that self-reflection, you stay the same leader and you eventually wind up undermining the growth of your organization. Boom. On that note, that was amazing. Um, I, I double click on everything you just said. And I really thank you for being here. And we're going to have you back because we actually didn't even talk about funders and fundraising. Oh, so oh my goodness. Like, that's a whole other thing. That's a whole, as I say in the South, that's a whole nother thing. A whole nother, nother thing. Right. <laughs> this is great. Thank, thank you, Ria. Thank you for coming. Bye. Bye. That was awesome. That was so much fun. Oh, my what God. I know. The sound level's okay?